In the Korean War, Baker Company was cut off from their unit as enemy forces started to march in. And for several hours, headquarters tried to communicate with the missing troops. Finally, they got a faint signal that was received. Baker Company, Company, Baker Company, do you read? And finally, a response came through. This is Baker Company, came their reply. What's your situation? Well, the enemy is to the, to the east and it's to the west. And we now know it's to the south and also to the north. And reportedly, Baker Company, the lieutenant responded, we've got the enemy exactly where we want. We know where he is. Well, that response might have been rather brash, brashly confidence, but you can't deny that it was incredibly bold. And this morning, I want us to dive into a place to the surround of a battlefield that where Paul encourages us to be not, not brashly bold, but to be realistically bold as, as he comes to the nearing the end of the stages of what he has to say to the Ephesian church. And he does so with a warning that the enemy is upon you, so heads up and suit up. However, our problem is, is often we don't understand that the enemy is around. We, he doesn't have any identifiers. He doesn't give any night scope uh, sights of who he is or no radar pig, pings. And so we carry on unaware and unconcerned. And for most of us, our, our response to battle, it's historic of what we know. It's something studied, it, not something lived. It's out there, not here. And the result, our understanding and the urgency of a battleground, it's determined by a picture of battle, not the real thing. And for a child, the, the picture is of a battle and soldiers is something of soldiers on parade, dry cleaner, clean, and celebratory music and cheering crowds. It's a spectacular, image perfect, but battle gear unused and untested. For students of war, their understanding, their picture, are less innocent because they've seen the celluloid, they, they visited the museums and the display cases of those that were barely, barely men, old enough to shave, they were struck down into the place of battle. And their rendition is of uh, dirt-covered dirt instruments of war, weaponry that is once used. No celebrations, just sobering reality. But for the battle-tested warrior, celluloid can't begin to tell the story of what war is like. They know what it means to live the battle of survival against the terrifying, where, where death has claimed friends and foe, where one wrong step, one wrong move could mean certain death. And it's that blood and guts image, that truth of warfare that Paul brings us into telling us that we've been enlisted into a battle that, that isn't watched with music and pictures of somewhere out there. It isn't studied as a university requirement. It, it's fought with frontline engagement. And because of that, Paul says, suit up, get prepared. But our problem is, how do, how do we suit up for a battle that we can't see? 
that we don't understand. And how do we fight an enemy whose power is far greater than mine? An enemy not unlike the coronavirus that comes unseen and unannounced. It just descends with a power that it seems unstoppable. An enemy that surrounds in fear, that imprisons in fear, that paralyzes in fear. And when we think of the battle that the Bible speaks of, we rightly go to the passage which we often think of in Ephesians 6, which calls us to the place of putting on the armor of God. And most of what we understand begins what follows verse 11, the command to put on that armor. And But while Paul makes it clear that God's equipment is essential for survival. It's not the core of our survival. The core is given us in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And it's that verse that I really want to dwell on this morning and really dig into. Because Paul's first call is for us to be strong. With the understanding that Our strength has nothing to do with us. If we rely on our strength and our understanding, our resources, we will be hopelessly outmatched because we're engaged in what the Bible tells us is a spiritual battle. And in fact, our strength is a liability because the stronger we think we are, the actually the weaker we truly are. And occasionally, like corona we're reminded that we don't have the resources to deal with or or in the case of of josh and and caitlin they crashed into that reality as their little baby's life was endangered that the sense they don't have the definable answers and it's times like these that we know that we only have one place that we can go we are helpless But God tells us there is a strength in which we can stand and are to stand. So the good news as we enter into this passage this morning, if if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling that you're resourceless, if you're feeling that you just don't have anywhere to turn, you in many ways are in a good place because it's in our weakness that we better understand our need to rely on Jesus. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, no matter what form it may take, we need to understand that the enemy we face is not insignificant. He is deceptive. He is deceitful. And he is determined. John 8.44 tells us that there is no truth in him and that his native language, it's just lie. Revelation 12, 17, or 12, verses 7 to 9, tells me that he is a deceiver who deceives the whole world. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This enemy is also, we're told, very crafty. In Genesis 3, 1, we're told, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Look, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? 
Now, it's important that we take a look at how this plays out. Because when Satan came to Eve in the garden, his first approach was to drive a wedge between Eve and God. And he does so with characteristic deceit and craftiness. Listen to what he said. You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. But as you and I know, that, that's not what God said. He said, you shall not eat of one tree from the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve failed to understand, do you know what's actually being kept from you? Because don't miss what Satan was offering. Eve only had the knowledge of good. She knew what it was to walk with God. Her life was no pain, no death, no sin, nor so, no sorrow. And so what had she been offered? She had been offered the deceit of the knowledge of evil. Because evil is the only thing that Satan can offer. But in his deception, he makes the evil look incredibly good. Too good to miss. Too good to pass up. And behind his invitation, his enemy miss, whispers, you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what's been kept from you. You don't know how good this will feel, how good this will be. And on first taste, what he delivers is absolutely true. It does feel good. So Satan's first weapon is a wedge in between what God has said. But his second deception is subtle. It's far more easily missed. But at its core, it speaks to who God is. Understand, Satan cannot deny God's power. There's far too much evidence for that. There's, there's the evidence of creation and all the animals he's made, the heavens. There's the unspoiled beauty, the majesty that everywhere surrounds. So God creator is not the place that Satan will go because he can't go there. It's too, that's undeniable. And in the first chapters of Genesis, we're introduced to God creator given us in his name. Elohim. And Elohim is to say that you are the Lord God, the powerful creator of the universe. You're Elohim. But it's here that Satan wedges in. Because he comes at the relationship that God has with Adam and Eve. He, he uses God uses a name to describe himself that he is Yahweh Elohim. He's the God of power in relationship with, which is the word Yahweh, the covenant name. And it, it describes, Yahweh describes his covenant relationship with his people. And that name is about his power and his relationship, his lordship, and his love. He is Yahweh, the Lord God, who walked with them and talked with them. And it's here that Satan comes in and wedges in, coming to Eve and saying, let's talk about God. 
Again, he's not about to touch his power. Instead, he plants doubt about the trustworthiness of his relationship. Can this God be trusted in a way that will work according to your best? Because isn't he a God who denies, who keeps you away from the things that are good? Doesn't he withhold? In short, yes, God is powerful, but is he good? Can you depend on him? Can you trust him to do what is best? So when he says, has God said, he distances Eve from his covenant name, his relationship name, to simply call him Elohim. He's God powerful. Ever since creation, he's been telling the same lie, constantly whispering, Has God said, surely he doesn't care, surely he doesn't know, surely he's keeping things away, so so just indulge, what's it going to hurt? So so just choose, what's what's it's going to make a difference in your life? Just taste, what difference is one taste going to make? Just one small adjustment to my income, just one substance to try, just one visit that no one will ever know about, just one innocent after work encounter, just just one. All lies and deceptions from the enemy to displace God's authority over your life and mine. So Satan can take control of our lives. It's a whisper that plays out in our relationships of spouse to spouse. It's a whisper that gets megaphone volume as it plays out with our relationship with our children. It's, it's a whisper that comes into our our relationships and within our church, resulting in broken marriages and broken lives and broken, broken relationships. It's a relationship that we see earlier in Ephesians where it talks about things that are fed and fueled by clamor and malice. It's marked by anger and, and unwillingness to forgive. It's holding on to our book of wrongs. It nurtures fear and distrust. And that's the battleground that that God is saying, but you need to be strong. You need, in issues like these, you need to stand strongly. And to understand what God's talking about when when Paul talks about being strong, we need to look at 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 to 14, where he says this, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Brian Tomey has written a book called The Five Marks of a Man, and in these, he he centers down on these verses and pulls out key words that, that I think are well worth looking at. And he says, the first one is this, be watchful. This is what 1 Corinthians tells us. Be watchful. See where you are. See what surrounds. See what's coming. Look out. Be prepared. Proactive in knowing what needs to be done and armed with that awareness, ready to sound the alarm and what you see coming at us. The second thing uh, God warns us is, is stand firm. Be willing to stand against the tide and when needed, Be willing to take a minority report doing what's right, not convenient. Stand firm in our faith, not giving in to what everyone else is doing. 
It's fleshing out the spirit of Joshua and Caleb, the two of the 12 spies who decided, no, we're going this way no matter what you want to do. And they had the courage to send out a minority report where the majority of the 10 let their eyes dictate what their heart were doing and their feet as they ran away in fear. And those 10 weren't physically weak. They would have been, they would have been the tribe's best man each one, each one of the ten would have been their, their best. Men of courage and exploit. They were men of strength. They were men of daring, of men of adventure. But what they weren't is they weren't men of faith. They were strong physically. They were weak spiritually. And God's call to us is get your faith right and stand firm. Understand who we worship. Then he says act like men. Notice, it's not singular, it's plural. Calling others to common purpose. A united force acting with linked arm, team players, not soloists, stepping out to do what others won't do, engaging a battle that must be engaged. Men who didn't look around and say, waiting to see what others would do, but men actually that would stand out and say, I'm, I'm going, I'm standing, and as we stand, others coming alongside us and joining in. Then the fourth thing we're told is that in 1 Corinthians is to be strong. Understand what you stand for. Know the battle that must be won. Know the purpose to which you've been called. That means seeing what needs to be seen and standing in what you know needs to be done, then stepping out supported by the strength of others. And lastly, the fifth thing that is to be a mark of our courage is to be a people that do it in love. Strength that protects, not controls. It's love-driven. It's the picture of the mother who will do whatever it takes to protect her young child, often doing feats of strength, feats of stepping into, because the love is the driver of every action that she takes. Strength that controls and demands, as Paul would say earlier, as the Neil just outlined, strength that controls and demands is not love. It's not showing the heart of Christ, but strength in the one that calls us to love, strong in the Lord. And, and while, while Paul's words call us to act like men, obviously that's a call for all of us. It's not just restricted to men. This isn't a man-only thing. But it is, I believe, a message that men particularly need to hear because men so often step back and allow the women oftentimes to take the spiritual lead while we engage in other activities. And Paul said, no, 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 no. no. You're to act like men. Step out into the faith. Be watchful. Stand firm. Act together, strong in the Lord. Wake up and step out. And be strong, being strong in the Lord tells me that the source of my strength is actually relational. We are strong, not in the power we, in, we possess, but in the power that we have been given that will possess us. We've been made strong. And notice, 
Where does it say we've been strong? Is it in Jesus? Doesn't say that. Does it say that we're to be strong in God? Doesn't say that. What it says is that we are to be strong in the Lord. And that tells me that my strength isn't just relational, it's positional. How strong we are is dependent how we stand in that relationship. Living in the strength of the Lord is a matter of our will. And in that respect, the strength we draw on is in some ways conditional. The strength of the Lord, that's not negotiable. The strength is there. It's there for us to possess. Because he is Lord. He is that. But whether we live under the authority of his lordship is a different question altogether. And many Christians live powerless and defeated lives because they haven't completely yielded to God's authority in their lives. And Paul says of these in 1 Corinthians, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people but because you're people of the flesh. You're infants. You're babes in Christ. You're a believer, but your life hasn't been given over to me in totality. James 4.3 says, You ask, and you don't receive, because you ask wrongly to spend on your own passions. And when we get the authority question right, Satan is defeated. But when we don't, Satan gets mileage out of rattling his chains or getting us involved in other things rather than living for him. It's a matter of authority. Tommy talks about how in the uh, South Africa, they were having a trouble with elephants in there that were doing incredible damage to the foliage and to the other animals because there was an overpopulation of them. So they, they at Kruger Park, National Park, they made the decision that they would airlift the elephants uh, to a different national park. The difficulty was is the te technology of helicoptering them uh, only allowed them to take the smaller male elephants out and put them where they were needed into another area where there weren't enough elephants. So they airlifted them into the new park. But soon what the forest rangers were finding is that the endangered white rhino were, were becoming killed. And they couldn't figure out why. But they found them with holes in them. And, and they were gored, gored not by poachers, but by these elephants, these young male elephants that had gone rogue because they were, they were sexually desirous, but they weren't desirable because the females, elephants, would only mate with a bull elephant, uh, an older elephant. And they knew that there were two elephants particularly that were doing all the damage, and so they ended up killing them only to find that other male elephants stepped into the fray. Fortunately, technology changed, and they were able to airlift some male, significantly male bull elephants, older elephants that were more mature, and they elevated them or, or lifted them into the new park. And it was said that once they came, that the male elephants, and they had one on film, where the young male elephant took on the bull elephant, and it showed that the bull elephant quickly had thrown the, the other male onto its side and conquered him. And it was said, once the authority was established, peace came to the area. Because it's an authority 
question. So our ability to stand strong is to know before whom we stand that it is not before we stand before Jesus, not before that we stand before God, although the, all that is true. It's before we stand before the Lord who is supreme over everything. We stand in the strength of his might. So when Paul commands, be strong in the power of might, he is saying, stand strong in the assurance of who he is in us, that we are to stand in him. The, the picture in some ways is of, a, is of a little boy being surrounded by bullies and squeaking out his, his protests and his strength of courage that he's going to take them on and then watching all these bullies disappear. Why? Because this little one has strength? No, he has none. But standing behind him is his father who has great authority. Standing in the authority of the one who is our Lord. That is the secret of spiritual warfare. It is not fundamentally the shield of righteousness. It is not fundamentally the gospel of peace. Though those are all instrumental, but it all begins with what Paul gives us in verse 10. That we are to stand in the Lord in the strength of his might. And here's what Paul has given us in Ephesians. Don't spiritualize all this. Don't, don't play this out in your Sunday morning church thing. Don't, don't play it out in your God talk. Play it out as you live husband to wife and wife to husband. Play it out as you parent. Play it out as you're an employee for an employer or an employer for an employee. Don't do this spiritual divide thinking this is where God will, or the, the enemy will attack over in the religious and he'll leave the secular alone. The truth of the matter is he comes into those places where we are most vulnerable and they are in the places that we don't put on our armor and we don't understand that we stand in the strength of his power in the things that we deal with 365 living strong in the Lord. This isn't a monastic retreat that we go away and we have some experience with the Lord that suddenly everything changes. It's living out and breathing in the sense that, God, you are the, the Lord of my life. It's in these places that we are called to stand strong in the power of his might. And sure, it's true, there, there w might come some times when the demonic is far more obvious, far more visible. But he wasn't visible when he asked Eve to take some fruit off a tree in disobedience. It was the day-by-day -day course of living. It's in the relationships. It's where lie wants to speak and present itself as truth. It's where the deceit will come. And Paul would say to this, live in the strength of the Lord in the 365 that we do life. Not a combat zone that is easily marked and easily seen, but in the places that God has placed us every day to live in the power of his might. And so what does the Lord say? 
So be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. And do not be dismayed. For the Lord God is with you wherever you go. So be strong in the strength of his might. As you parent, as you work as the employee, doing things as unto the Lord, not as unto him or her as she looks on at what work you're doing, but unto him. And he is a rewarder. The Lord is a rewarder of those that stand strong in the power of his might. For he is the Lord for whom we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we just acknowledge that that we see you, we bow to you as Lord. And there's so much that surrounds right now that we can't make sense of. And that there's even the places right now, sometimes, Lord, are just fatigue and, and discouragement of being surrounded and secluded to so many degrees of what we're facing in this corona, where life easily can lose its luster. We pray, Lord, that you will meet us in these places and we will give over to your lordship in these places that you will accomplish in us and through us and around us what you desire to do, that you are king of kings, you are lord of lords, and Lord, we bow to that. In your name we pray, amen.